0: I was telling uh, Lig Duncan a moment ago that uh, this message is probably unique in that I have a quote from Diedrich Bonhoeffer, John L. Dagg, and uh, Charles Finney. You say, what do they agree on? Not much, but they do agree on the importance and the necessity of church discipline. Our text uh, this afternoon is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 13, one of your classic texts that deal with this particular issue. Most of you will be familiar with it, but I think it's still appropriate that we would begin by the reading of God's Word. Here is what Paul wrote. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus... You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person among you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian, wrote, Nothing can be more cruel than leniency which abandons others to sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than that severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. John L. Dagg, the Baptist theologian, is very famous for this very simple but straightforward statement. When discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it. Carl Laney, professor at Western Seminary, adds, quote, the church that neglects to confront and correct its members lovingly is not being kind, forgiving, or gracious. Such a church is really hindering the Lord's work and the advance of the gospel. The church without discipline is a church without purity and power. By neglecting church discipline, a church endangers not only its spiritual effectiveness, but also its very existence. God snuffed out the candle of the church at Thyatira because of moral compromise. Churches today are in danger of following this first century precedent. First Corinthians chapter 5 reminds us that avoiding and neglecting church discipline is not new. It goes all the way back to the first century and even back beyond into the Old Testament covenant people of Israel. It also though provides us both theological and practical guidance for the recovery of what I like to call the missing jewel in the life of too many local churches. Alistair Begg is right. Church discipline is intended to bring glory to God as His people simply obey His word. And so, what I want to do this afternoon in this last session before dinner is walk us through these 13 verses. And I'm going to make seven separate observations from the text that will help us rediscover. Um, cultivate, uh, appropriately put into practice what I like to call the ministry of loving confrontation. The ministry of loving confrontation. So here we go. Number one, to neglect church discipline invites the ridicule of the world. To neglect church discipline invites the ridicule of the world. Verse one begins, it is actually reported. I cannot believe this is being said that there is Pornaya, sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. A man has his father's wife. Paul has received a report that has already gone viral and in, in Corinth. He may have received it from Chloe's people, mentioned back in chapter 1 in verse 11. He may have received it from Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, who were mentioned in chapter 16 in verse 17. And he tells us it is a case of pornia, sexual immorality, a word, by the way, that appears 10 times in chapter 5 going through the early part of chapter 7. Specifically here, it is a case of incest, a man has his father's wife. Now, almost all scholars are convinced that it is his stepmother who is in view here, not his biological mother. It is also important to note the tense that is used here. He has, it's in the present tense, it's an ongoing, habitual relationship that is not a uh, one-time affair. And it's interesting to note that Paul makes no mention of taking action against the woman, which I think would indicate by its silence that she is not viewed as a believer. Paul would, I think, say to us, we are not surprised that incest is condemned repeatedly in the Old Testament, for it most certainly is. Leviticus 18.8, Deuteronomy 22.30, Deuteronomy 27.20. But Paul's point is, even the pagan Romans recognized such a behavior to be utterly scandalous. In fact, the Roman orator Cicero said incest was virtually unheard of in Roman society. And so amazingly, both the Hebrews and the Romans can agree upon something as being unheard of, as being scandalous, as being utterly inconceivable, and yet this is something that the Corinthian church was proudly condoning. As one man said, the church is now out-tolerating the tolerance of a debaucherous Roman culture. And in the process, of course, they invite both the criticism and the ridicule of the lost, and the gospel is lost completely. In essence, by tolerating this man's sin, they were acknowledging the gospel changes nothing. If anything, the gospel least in this instance seems to extend sexual liberation to worlds we've never even known before. And so he points out that the pagans of Corinth, they did not applaud, they mocked, and they did not cheer, they jeered. Brothers and sisters, an impure church will soon be a powerless church. And the habitual tolerance of unrepentant public sin will rob the gospel of its beauty, and it will also rob the church of its witness. Now, I want to be fair here. For a season, for a moment, the world may celebrate the world may indeed commend you for your tolerance and your open mindedness and your displays of what they falsely understand to be love. But in time, that applause will be silenced and you will be lampooned, you will be scorned, and eventually, and this is where we're headed, the church will just be ignored altogether. You will not be viewed in opposition, you will just be viewed as irrelevant because you look no different than the secular pagan world in which you now find yourself. No, a church that looks and acts like the world is of the world, there's no difference. Why would anybody take notice of you? Why would anybody care? Robert Socy is right. Church discipline in all its forms was given by the head of the church for the health and welfare of the body to avoid the practice when necessary for the sake of reputation, or for for what is really a false unity, can only lead to a sick and weak church. Sacrifice the church's purity, and you will soon forfeit the church's power and the church's witness, and the world will stand by and ridicule. To neglect church discipline invites the ridicule of the world. Number two, Pride instead of sorrow leads us to ignore church discipline. Pride instead of sorrow leads us to ignore church discipline. That's verse 2. My friend and colleague here at Southeastern Seminary, Chuck Lawless, wrote a very fine article just uh, this last April entitled 12 Reasons Churches Don't Practice Church Discipline. And this is what Dr. Lawless put for us to consider. Number one. They don't know the Bible's teaching on discipline. Number two, they've never seen it done before. Number three, they don't want to appear judgmental. Number four, the church has a wide open front door. Number five, they've had a bad experience with discipline in the past. Number six, the church is afraid to open what they perceive to be a Pandora's box. Number seven, they have no guidelines for discipline. Number eight, they fear losing members and or their dollars. Number nine, their Christianity is individualistic and privatized. Number 10, they fear being legalistic. Number 11, they hope that transfer growth will fix the problem. And number 12, some leaders are dealing with their own sin. Now I believe there's merit and truth in each of the things that Dr. Lawless has observed. But in our text, Paul would quickly add an additional reason that certainly I think undergirds many of the reasons that Dr. Lawless gave. What is the reason that the church at Corinth was not exercising discipline? Pride. Pride. The text says there in verse 2, you are arrogant and ought you not rather to mourn? Uh, The word arrogant is translated by the NIV as proud. Uh, The New King James says you are puffed up. Uh, The tense of the verb is perfect, which speaks of an action in past time that now has a kind of settled, abiding result. They they are settled and abiding and comfortable in their arrogance and in their pride. Something, by the way, that Paul has already dealt with a number of times in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 31, chapter 3, verse 21, and chapter 4, verse 6, verse 18, and verse 19. In fact, at the end of chapter 4 in verse 21, he warns warns them that their response to his letter would determine whether he would come to them with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness. Now, we're not certain why they were proud and puffed up over their indulgence of sexual immorality in their fellowship. Some people believe that, uh, steeped in Platonic philosophy, that they were uh, being led along by a false dualism that said the spiritual man — remember Paul's discussion of that back in chapter 2 and chapter 3 — so it's the spiritual man who no longer should concern himself with the issues of the body. After all, the body is the prison house of the soul, as Plato said. And so, all that matters is my spiritual nature, not what I do physically. And so, perhaps a false dualism was undergirding their faulty theology. Others have thought that perhaps they were simply guilty of a heretical understanding of of Christian liberty and a misunderstanding of grace. And therefore, should we go on sinning that grace may abound? Absolutely. And of course, Paul deals with that very clearly in the book of Romans, and he deals with it here as well. Uh, What we do know, though, is this, they were taking pride in their sin in the camp when their proper response should have been, was it say there, you should rather have mourned. The NIV says you should be filled with grief. But a sin-sick church will boast. It will boast that we are affirming. We are accepting But a gospel-intoxicated church will mourn, we are sinful, and we are undone. Woe is we. It will readily acknowledge that they are nothing less than a community of repenting sinners. They will recognize that they must call sin what God calls sin, and they must fight against what God fights against. Now, let's be clear here. The issue is never one of perfection. We do not even begin to profess that. The issue is not one of perfection, but the issue is one of purity. Daniel Rye is very helpful here when he says, to maintain the purity of the church and her worship and to avoid profaning the sacrament of the Lord's table, this is why we practice church discipline. We shall never be able to keep the visible church in perfect purity, since we are but fallible men. Our inability to achieve perfection in this matter, however, is no excuse for giving up the attempt. We must maintain the purity of Christ's visible church to the full extent of our knowledge and power. This is all the more evident once we recognize that false doctrine and bad conduct are infectious. If these are tolerated in the church, all members will receive hurt. Given the seriousness of the situation, Paul's directive is simple and straightforward at the end of verse 2. Look at what it says there. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And now what he's going to do is proceed in verses 3 through 5 and explain to us the action that he now expects them to take in light of his confronting their sin of tolerance of sin, which leads us to our third observation. Church discipline is to be exercised under the lordship of Jesus Christ for the good of the whole body. Church discipline is to be exercised under the lordship of Jesus Christ for the good of the whole body. Paul says in verse 3, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my apostolic spirit is with you, In the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver. Now, it's interesting. He has already told us in verse 2, he's to be removed. He says here in verse 5, he is to be delivered to Satan. And even at the end of the passage in verse 13, he says, purge out the evil person from among you. R.C. Sproul says, the church is called not only to a ministry of reconciliation, but a ministry of nurture to those within her gates. Part of that nurture includes church discipline. In other words, Dr. Sproul is simply helping us to understand correction is essential to spiritual healthy growth and maturity in the body of Christ, and sometimes that correction takes the form of church discipline. But John MacArthur, you know, it's interesting when you think about Dr. MacArthur in this context, because Dr. MacArthur, uh, who's a dear friend to me and one of my ultimate heroes, I mean, he he is just below the apostles in, in my world. I mean, there's Jesus, there's the apostles, and there's John MacArthur. There he is right there. So, he is like one of my superheroes. But boy, he can be wicked with a pen. I mean, he can be like rough with a pen, But one-on-one and and, and interaction, he's just one of the kindest, most gentle, gracious individuals you'll ever meet. And in fact, um, several years ago, one of his staff persons was telling me about how Grace Community would go about exercising church discipline. And he said, you know, who is the most difficult person for us to get to pull the trigger on the final step of church discipline? And I said, well, I have no idea. And he said, it's John. It's John. Jo- John's always, well, maybe we need to go see him one more time. Maybe we need to pray a little bit longer. He said he really does have a pastor's heart. And so it was very interesting to me when I was preparing the study to look into what Dr. MacArthur said about church discipline and listen to what he says here. I've written in my notes, Dr. MacArthur adds this with a pleading pastoral voice. Listen to what John says. The purpose of church discipline is the spiritual restoration of a fallen member and the consequent strengthening of the church and the glorifying of the Lord. When a sinning brother is rebuked and he turns from his sin and is forgiven, he is won back to the fellowship with the body and with its head, Jesus Christ. The goal of of church discipline then is is not to throw people out of the church or to feed the self-righteous pride of those who administer the discipline is not to embarrass people or to exercise authority and power in some unbiblical manner. The purpose is to restore, to restore a sinning believer to holiness and bring him back into a pure relationship within the assembly. I like the spirit of what he says there. Here in our text, Paul's attitude stands in stark contrast to the proud and conceded Corinthians. He does invoke his apostolic authority. He states he is there with them even if he is absent in body. Furthermore, he says, I have already pronounced judgment. It's another use of the perfect tense verb where he says, I have set my judgment down and it is settled. It is not moving. It is not changing. It is fixed and it is stable. And thereby, I am nullifying the Corinthians' moral laxity on this issue, and this man who calls himself a brother in the Lord must be dealt with differently than you have been dealing with him. And indeed, there is a finality to what he says as he begins to note in verses 4 and 5 where there's really kind of a logic, a spiritual logic to how the church is to adjudicate this particular matter. Now, I am making an assumption that Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, which, which Garrett so ably expounded a moment ago, has already been implemented. I, I am assuming that they have already taken the Matthew 18 steps. Although, I would also want to add as a footnote. There could be very severe situations that sometimes necessitate moving very, 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 very quickly to the final step of excommunication. Normally, we're patient. Normally, we're loving. Well, we're always loving. But we're also sometimes, most of the time, careful. Moving slowly. Giving time. But there are some occasions where the health of the body is in such peril, you would not be wise and loving to delay any longer. So Paul says, when you assemble together under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ with apostolic witness, and by the way, this is clearly congregational, it's clearly congregational. I like to say it this way, there's just no place uh, in church discipline for a lone ranger. I mean, even the Lone Ranger had Tonto, and so when you begin to exercise church discipline, it needs to be done not just one-on-one, but eventually many are involved in the process. Secondly, it's in the power, which means the authority or the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the context in which this man is to be removed from their fellowship, verse 2, and delivered into the realm of Satan, the realm of the world, in verse four, and then he tells us there in verse four that when you do this, when you in the power of Christ gather, you deliver this man, verse five and here 's the really uh, ticklish part of the uh, hermeneutic of this passage: You deliver this man to Satan, why for the destruction of his flesh, whatever that means, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now you pick up a dozen commentaries and you read about uh, their understanding of verses three, four, and five, and you're going to come up with at least five or six different understandings, though there are two that primarily uh, dominate. Clearly he is talking about the man's sinful desires and impulses of his sinful flesh being destroyed so that he himself might be saved, be found redeemed in the day of the Lord. Now, some people believe that what is actually taking place here is what would be called a a curse pronouncement. There's actually a a curse that is being called down upon the man and perhaps leading to his physical death. And some that take that view believe that we have warrant for it from the story of Ananias and Sapphira in in Acts chapter 5. Uh, Perhaps uh, what you have in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where they're abusing the Lord's table, and Paul says, because of this, some of you are sick, and some of you are asleep, and he wasn't talking about them taking a siesta, he was talking about the fact that the Lord had taken their physical life. And so, I have to acknowledge though that's not my view. It certainly has some merit and some weight. On the other hand, I think the thrust of what is going on here is much more the idea of correction and restoration. Now, I again want to be fair. I think if we were able by some miracle to bring Paul up here on the stage and let him participate in our panel discussion, that would make it even more entertaining than it has previously been today. And we were to ask Paul, hey, Paul, all right, we've been wondering this now for like 2,000 years. It really would have been nice if you had told us what you thought. But this guy there at Corinth, was he a Christian? And I think Paul would say, in all honesty, well, I don't know. I know he wasn't acting like one, but I don't know if he were to get restored and Second Corinthians 2 may indicate that he did. If it's talking about the same situation, then, then obviously he was, or maybe he got saved because of the loving confrontation that took place. But I think Paul helps us out here with his own ambiguity when he says down there in verse nine, I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name, a so-called brother. So I think Paul would say, I, I really don't know. I do know what our Lord expects us to do with someone who professes Christ, who is in public, unrepentant, continuous, serious acts of sin. I do know what the Lord expects us to do. That's interesting. John Piper has a sermon on this passage, got a really interesting title How Satan Saves the Soul, which is fascinating it got in my eye, needless to say. And John tracks, to my surprise, with the correction restoration interpretation, drawing an analogy from the book of Job. And here's what John says, I think it's worth repeating. What seems to be in view is something like what happened in the book of Job. The only other place in the Bible outside Paul's letters where, quote, handing someone over to Satan with these very words occurs. It's Job 2.6, which says literally, and the Lord said to the devil, behold, I hand him over to you, only spare his life. Then the next verse says, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And the result of God's gracious purpose, Job 42 verse 6 and 7, now my eyes have seen you, O Lord, and I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. So, Satan became the means under God's sovereign control of purifying Job's heart, bringing him closer than ever to God. This is not the only place where God uses Satan to do that. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul describes his thorn in the flesh as a messenger of Satan, which God appoints for Paul's humility in Christ's glory. Verse 7, to keep me from exalting myself. There was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to beat me, to keep me from exalting myself." I like this. Jesus is Satan's ruler, and he uses Satan, our enemy, to save and sanctify his people. He brought Job to penitence and prosperity. He brought Paul to the point where he could exalt in tribulation and make the power of Christ manifest. And Paul hopes that the result of handing over this man to Satan will be the salvation of his spirit at the day of Christ. In other words, Paul's aim, our aim, in handing someone over to Satan is that some striking misery will come in such a way that the person will say with Job, My eyes have seen the Lord." And I despise myself, and I repent in dust and in ashes. Church discipline is to be exercised under the lordship of Jesus Christ for the good of the whole body. Number four, the absence of church discipline can lead to the church being infected with sin. The absence of church discipline can lead to the church being infected with sin. Verse six, your boasting is not good. Do you not know? And by the way, chapter 6 in particular is known as the do you not know chapter. Six times in that passage, the uh, Apostle Paul will begin an argument with the statement, do you not know? Well, here's the first one. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Uh, This verse contains, first of all, a statement of fact, and then is also accompanied by a warning. Statement of fact is very clear. Your boasting is not good. And for those of you that like the literary study of the Bible, this forms an inclusio with verse 2. In other words, your arrogance and your tolerance of ongoing sin is something you should be ashamed of. You should not be proud of yourselves. And the fact is your spiritual value system has been turned on its head and you're thinking wrongly about this whole issue. Your your carnal boasting Is going to eventually lead to spiritual blindness with the whole body being infected. And he gives the warning in uh, what would have been in that particular day and time, a a modern proverb, a a pithy saying. It would be somewhat analogous to our saying that uh, one bad apple can spoil the whole barrel. And so, rooted in the Passover And the common everyday understanding among the Jews of leaven as representing evil, Paul just simply warns the church that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. In other words, there is a contaminating element to sin. It's like cancer, and it can spread widely and quickly, infecting the whole body. Curtis Vaughn, the wonderful Greek professor for many years at Southwestern Seminary said, one corrupt member could corrupt an entire church. Church discipline recognizes a very simple fact, sin is bad for the church. Left unchecked, it spreads like cancer, it spreads like kutzu through a fellowship, it grows wide, it grows deep, the purity of the church is compromised, and the wonder of the gospel is very quickly lost. Passion for the unreached and the underserved will wane. Love for the Word will dissipate. Respect for the ministers of the Word will be crippled. And here's the bottom line. Satan would rather have a little leaven inside the church than a whole batch on the outside. Give him the opportunity to surround our fellowship with those who oppose him. He will gladly set every one of them aside just to slip one Trojan horse inside our fellowship to do his devastating work. See, the fact of the matter is, brothers and sisters, attitudes and actions are contagious. And personally, I do not want to stand before a holy God at the judgment seat of Christ and explained my actions and my attitudes and my cowardice and compromise, which led someone to believe that their sinning was okay. In his classic address, Three Changes in Theological Institutions, delivered at Furman University on July the 30th, 1856, James Boyce warned, and he is speaking in a particular context, but it applies equally well here. It is with a single man, that error usually commences. And when such a man has influence or position, it is impossible to estimate that evil that will attend it. And so, we must understand that the absence of church discipline can lead to the church being infected with sin. Number five, church discipline is grounded by Paul in the redemptive work of Christ. Church discipline is grounded by Paul in the redemptive work of Christ. Here in verses 6, 7, and 8, Paul does what he often does when dealing with a critical issue. He grounds his argument in the gospel. Just like he grounds his understanding of marriage in the gospel, he grounds his understanding of church discipline in the gospel as well. And specifically, He draws from the imagery of the Passover that is recorded, of course, in Exodus chapter 12. Hear what he says there in verse 7. He begins with a command, cleanse out the old leaven uh, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Why Paul? For Christ, our Passover lamb has past tense. He's already been sacrificed for us. Let us therefore celebrate. Celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, not with sin, not with the sin of things like malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread, with the purity of sincerity and with truth. In other words, Paul says, look, sin needs to be cleansed out just like old leaven was before the Passover was observed. Bottom line, this sinning brother, this unrepentant brother, he's got to go. After all, their repentance of sin and faith in Christ has made believers a new lump without leaven. We're new creations in Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. So bottom line is Paul is just simply saying, you begin to act like you truly are. You begin to live like you truly are. You've been redeemed. Christ has been sacrificed for you. You've given your lives to Him. Live out in practice what is the reality of your conversion. We're new in Him. We're never to live again in the old ways of slavery to sin. Again, MacArthur is very helpful here. As pictured in the Passover in Egypt, The sacrifice of Jesus Christ, God's perfect Passover lamb, and the placing of his blood over us completely separates us from the dominion of sin and the penalty of judgment. We too are to remove everything from the old life that would taint and permeate the new. As Israel was set free from Egypt as a result of the Passover and was to make a clean break with that oppressor. So, the believer is to be totally separated from his old life with its sinful attitudes, standards, and habits. Christ died to separate us from bondage to sin and give us a new bondage, a new bondage to righteousness, which is the only true freedom. Verse 8 then pictures our life in Christ as a party as a joyful festival that we celebrate out with the old and in with the new. Out goes things like malice and evil. The NIV says wickedness. In comes things like sincerity and truth. In other words, I now delight in who I am in Christ, and I delight in who I am becoming in Him. David Brainerd His story is in that book that Mark held up a moment ago, Ten Who Changed the World, probably more responsible for the modern missionary movement than any other person I know. God took him at 29 in his mysterious providence. Uh, He was for a very short time a missionary to American Indians, David Brainerd's diary, again, has done probably as much as any book outside the Bible to fuel the passion for missions. And David Brainerd said this is what he saw take place among the Indians that he was seeking to evangelize with the gospel. I never got away from Jesus and Him crucified. And I found that when my people were gripped by the great evangelical doctrine of Christ and Him crucified, I had not need to give them instructions about morality. I found that one followed as the sure and inevitable fruit of the other. I found my Indians begin to put on the garments of holiness and their common life begins to be sanctified even in small matters when they are possessed by the doctrine of Christ and Him crucified. So we understand that church discipline is grounded by Paul in our Lord's redemptive work. Number six church discipline is to be exercised in the community of faith, not the world. It is to be exercised in the community of faith and not the world. Now, let me say this before we walk through these verses. There is an important relationship, and I had not seen this really before, but there is an important relationship between the ministries of church discipline and evangelism. And Paul, I think, helps us see this in these verses. In other words, in a real sense, Church discipline and evangelism are flip sides of the coin of salvation. Church discipline and evangelism, maybe the other way, evangelism and church discipline are flip sides of the same coin of salvation. Again, Carl Laney says it so well, evangelism ministers to those outside the church who are in bondage to sin. Congregational discipline ministers to those within the church who are in bondage to sin. And this is exactly Paul's argument in verses 9, 10, and 11. He begins, I wrote to you in my letter. Now we need to note that this is what we call the lost Corinthian letter. Uh, Paul wrote a letter that in God's promise was not uh, uh, preserved, and therefore God did not intend for it to be a part of the inspired canon. So, Paul had written previously to the Corinthians this lost letter. He told them not to fellowship or associate with sexually immoral persons who profess to follow Christ and believe the gospel. But apparently They misunderstood his instructions, either accidentally or intentionally. Uh, Interestingly, F.F. Bruce thinks they did it on purpose. He thinks they understood clearly what Paul was saying, but they twisted his words to fit with their sinful lifestyle. And so, Paul quickly corrects them, and he provides for us a representative kind of list, of sins that are public and continuous and unrepentant, the kind of sins that we must lovingly confront when they are active and known in our fellowship. So, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers, idolaters, since if that were the case, you'd have to go out of the world. no. I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, and he is guilty of sexual immorality, greed, idolatry, a reviler, drunkard, swindler, of these you are not even to eat with such a one." Interestingly, there are six different sins that are noted here in these verses, sexual immorality, greed, swindling, idolatry, reviling, and drunkenness. All of them, by the way, are addressed later at some point in this particular passage. And basically, Paul's argument is grounded in the teaching of Jesus in John chapter 17, where our Lord tells us we are going to be in this world, but we're not to be of this world. He does not want us to be removed completely, as he says in John 17, 18, in his high priestly prayer to his Father, as you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So, we are in the world to do the work of evangelism, sharing the gospel, bearing witness to Christ. I mean, after all, brothers and sisters, we have to spend time with lost people to win lost people. And that's just kind of self-evident. And if we're not spending time with lost people, we're not going to win lost people to faith in Christ. So, that is not what he meant at all. What he meant was those who profess Christ as a brother or sister who are living in, again, continuous, unrepented public, known sin. And at that point, he says, you shun them, to use an old-fashioned word. We do not associate, verse 9 and verse 11, we do not associate with them, nor do we even eat with such a one. Open to interpretation. I think clearly it is a reference without any doubt to the Lord's Supper, But I think it also may extend even beyond that, and the idea is that we break all social ties with these persons except those engagements and those social interactions that have as their specific purpose restoration and reconciliation. Again, I like MacArthur's comment, the command not to have fellowship or even social contact with the unrepentant brother does not exclude all contact. When there's an opportunity to admonish him and try to call him back, the opportunity should be taken. In fact, such opportunities should be sought, but the conduct and the contact should be for the purpose of admonishment and restoration and no other. And on that, I am in absolute agreement with Dr. MacArthur. Finally, number seven, God judges those on the outside while we judge those on the inside. God judges those on the outside and we judge those on the inside. Verses 12 and 13 bring to a conclusion the argument of chapter 5. And here Paul lays out for us clear lines of responsibility and, and clear lines of demarcation. Bottom line, God judges those outside the church, that is lost people. We judge those as his people inside the church. Our responsibility then is to unrepentant, sinning brothers. We remove him. That's what he said earlier in verse 2. We deliver him to Satan for the destruction of his sinful flesh. That's what he said in uh, verse 5. And in verse 12, uh, verse 13, excuse me, we purge. The NIV has the word expel. We expel the evil person from among you. Again, this is a constant theme that you find, for example, in the book of Deuteronomy. And as is well noted in our prior session, such action, very serious action, always is to be bathed. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 and verse 2. See, what we do when we take these final steps of church discipline, we do with sorrow. We do it with a broken heart. I may say it to you this way, there is no joy... And having to deal with the man's sin but there is joy in being obedient to Christ there's no joy in having to deal with the issue of the sin with the God that it was not there but there is always joy in being obedient to Christ the fact is we will love him enough to hurt him even as it hurts us in some Overlooking sin is not loving, it's sinful. Overlooking sin is not gracious, it is cowardice. Overlooking sin is not merciful, it is dangerous. And overlooking sin is not kind, it is actually hateful. I often say to those that are closest to me, and I really mean this from the depths of my soul, there's really only one way that you can truly and and deeply wound me really is and that is that you see me in some action of sin or some kind of behavior that most certainly is probably sin that is dishonoring Christ and hurting the cause of his kingdom and you don't love me enough to point it out that means you don't love me enough to correct me you don't love me enough to try to keep me from sinning And the fact of the matter is, I want you to love me enough, if necessary, to hurt me. I don't agree with most of his theology, but I do agree with this statement by Charles Finney, who said, what does it mean to neglect the ministry of loving confrontation? He says it like this, if you see your neighbor sin and you pass by and neglect to reprove him, It is as cruel as if you should see his house on fire. Pass him by and not warn him. We should love one another enough to extend that warning. Even if it hurts them. Even if it hurts us. Because in the end, God can use it to renown for their good and for his glory. Heavenly Father, I thank you again for these uh, sessions we've had so far today. I've been challenged and I have learned, and I thank you that your word gives us very clear direction and instruction in how to deal with this vital mark of the church, the mark of church discipline. And Lord, we want to be obedient, but Lord, being obedient also means that we do what we do lovingly, kindly, and graciously, but we also do it, Lord, with courage and conviction. It does not bring glory to your name to act like cowards. And it does not bring glory to your name to turn our backs and turn a deaf ear to someone that is being destroyed by sin. That is not a loving thing to do. So Lord, give us that beautiful biblical balance that we might engage in loving confrontation in a way that again so beautifully represents you so wonderfully bespeaks the gospel, and indeed presents and provides opportunities for sinners to be restored and turned back to Jesus. All again, for his praise and glory, we ask this in his name. Amen.